In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about those firsts after a cancer diagnosis, cancer milestones. And it's also about using humor to cope when things go a little sideways. Our story and writer come today from our travel and adventure issue, a really fun theme we explored this past summer. There's a lot to learn, it turns out, about ourselves at the intersection of cancer and traveling. My guest today is Emma Jarrett. She is a performance coach and writer. She was diagnosed at 51 with lobular breast cancer that was stage three triple positive. Emma attributes her healing from breast cancer to finding her voice both in medical appointments and treatment choices, and then subsequently in writing a one-woman play about her experience. She now cherishes each year living in British Columbia, writing daily, helping others, and feeling grateful for the warmth of friends gathered near and far. Hey, Emma, welcome to The Burn. (laughs) Hi, April. Thank you. Nice to see you. So you are here to read an essay you wrote, like I said, for our travel and adventure issue. And the piece you're reading today is called Traveling with Pets. Those of you listening, please stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Emma, I'll let you take it away. Thanks, April. Traveling with Pets. I have trouble saying the word prostheses. It's a mouthful, too much tongue and not enough lips. I seem to have to distort my face and bare my teeth to say it. Or maybe that's my personal disgust showing. No offense to those of you with a great relationship to yours, but I'm still struggling to accept that I need to wear these cumbersome forms to feel well-dressed. The first time I heard a British acquaintance refer to hers as chicken fillets, I knew she was going to be a bosom buddy. Sorry, but humor is my refuge from the awkwardness. The first time I travel back to family and friends in Britain after my cancer ordeal in Canada, I'm a little pensive about all the times I had wondered whether I ever would again. But here I am, at the airport, about to board a long-haul flight. For comfort, and in the case of lymphedema, I'm dressed in a comfortable, loose shirt with a pattern to camouflage my flat chest. This is the first time I've been flat around so many people in a public place. I'm self-conscious, but physical comfort is my priority. Is it just me who mentally marks those firsts? First time I have a shower without breasts. First time I have sex. Well, this is the first time I return to my homeland without my breasts. It feels wrong somehow. Certainly sad. 
Don't ask me why, possibly because I was attempting to treat them like beloved pets, but I've packed both breast forms into my carry-on luggage. I am blissfully unaware at this stage that, packed together, they'll show up in the security screening as a suspiciously dense mass, which requires investigation. I gingerly lift my suitcase up onto the belt, wondering how many times I'll need to raise my arms and feel that tug at my scar-tight underarms. As I remove my coat and shoes, I start to worry about using an overhead locker. The things we don't think of that breast cancer affects. I'm a little lost in thought when I realise that my suitcase is still being x-rayed. I see a colleague called over, some pointing, a key pressed, and I watch the case exit via the off-ramp into the shame lane. I'm usually so diligent with liquids and sharps and have no idea what can be in there that they've detected. I'm ushered over by a young man in gloves who asks me to identify that this is my case and to give him permission to search for something probably metallic. He comes up with nothing by feel, but then as he carefully and laboriously unpacks everything, he pulls out my pet, removes them from their white drawstring pouches and states, Ah, these might be the problem. Yeah, dude, you have no idea, I resentfully think, as I feel my face redden. I'm going to put these back on top separately, then I'll have to run the case through again, okay? And he artfully places two naked breasts on top of my packing. I stare, and I swear everyone's attention gets laser-focused on the Dali-esque sight before he closes the zip with a flourish. Oh, sure, sorry, I splutter, feeling a hundred eyes now scrutinising my flat chest. No, ma'am, he interrupts. It's me who should be the sorry one here. His look of genuine compassion in this exposed, awkward setting catches me unawares. I feel my throat constrict, and I can barely see through my tears as I busily grab my coat for cover and struggle to put my shoes back on, barely remembering my left from my right. As I reach the gate and manage to find a seat at the end of a currently unoccupied row, I dry my tears and collect my thoughts. I hadn't realised how emotional this trip might prove to be, how much grief there still is to process. I don't want to make people who care about me feel awkward by my changed appearance, but I also don't want to hide. I want to be feeling comfortable among them, but I hate the distraction of nervously checking whether my foobs are placed evenly and in the right place, not travelling up to grab me by the throat. Do I choose physical comfort but visual shock? Or should I just get used to wearing them and the added pain of a tight bra on my underarm lymphedema? I don't want to be met with pity, but I do yearn to be understood. It's going to be two journeys, the trip back home and the continuation of this cancer voyage. Oh, I love that story, Emma. Thank you so much for reading to us today. Thank you. So we will take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will dig into it. Hi, friends. There is now a wildfire book in the world. It is a big, beautiful compilation of my favorite essays from Wildfire Magazine, spanning all the way back to our first ever issue in 2016, up to the summer of 2022. 
This book took years to create and is literally the resource I wish I had had when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. This book is called Igniting the Fire Within, and it's made up of 50 essays that really dig into the experience of having breast cancer in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Every stage of breast cancer is represented from DCIS to stage four, from all sorts of walks of life from all around the world. Our writers go deep and get vulnerable to heal their own experiences and to let others like you know that you're not alone. You will find yourself within these pages. Get Igniting the Fire Within, stories of healing, hope, and humor inside today's young breast cancer community on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle now. Curl up with it today. Hi, my name is Allison. I live in Calgary, Alberta, and I was diagnosed with stage 2B breast cancer at the age of 36 in 2022. I recently attended a Wildfire Magazine pop-up writing workshop for the young breast cancer community. I found the experience healing, opening, and so wonderful. The way April guides you allows for you just to open up and write. No judgments, no criticism, just writing. There was no pressure to share, but if you did, there was a space to do so. I fully enjoyed hearing words and experiences and thoughts from others. The entire experience allowed me to connect on a level most people outside the cancer community cannot understand. All right. Thank you so much for the love, Allison. Appreciate your testimonial. And turning back to you, Emma, thank you again for not only sharing that story in our travel issue, but reading it for us here today. Thank you so much. It was lovely to hear it from your own, your own voice, your own inflection. Thank you. It's, um, it's a lovely opportunity here to, yeah, to be able to read it and share it in the, uh, in the manner in which it was written. <laughs> yes. So how long ago did this, um, did this travel story take place? This must have been in 2017. So after um, Herceptin doses were over, when I'd, yeah, when I'd completed the last of the chemo. Mm-hmm. And been through the yeah surgery, chemo, then surgery, then radiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot. Yes, indeed, that really resonates for me personally. Um, and I also have had experience with a prosthesis. I just had one because I only had one of my breasts removed. Um, and I can picture picture them out on top of their luggage. So are you still traveling with them or what's what's the relationship with your pets? Nope. <laughs> My pets now live in a bottom okay. drawer. <laughs> I very occasionally pull them out. And the the couple of bras that I bought thinking that I'd yeah, managed to tolerate them, but I never wore kind of big solid mm. sports bras or whatever before. So now actually going and trying to yeah, fashion these things into something mm-hmm. comfortable. It's impossible, both physically and visually. I just don't look like me, even with different kind of forms in. I tried, but yeah, I've I've completely given up now. And this is me when I actually do play around with a certain dress and pack something into something. It's just like, what am I doing? That isn't me. I just want to look like me. And this is mm-hmm. me now. So yeah, I've I've come to terms with that part now, I think. I guess I want to ask you what you attribute the coming to terms with. Was it just time passing or is there something specific that really helped you? 
It was time passing, and it was also numerous, countless conversations with friends and people saying, I don't even notice. I'm just, I'm glad that you're here. You're Emma. You're, uh, yeah, you're this person who I've always loved or I've now got to know, and I had no idea that you've been through this. Or people who had known me just said, that was not an important piece about you, to you. So, so mm-hmm. that, or rather, sorry, to me <laughs> when they were speaking. Yes. Um, so that helped a lot to hear other people, but there was still a lot of anger, to be honest, mm-hmm. and resentment that I'd had to have my breasts removed, that it was a choice I had to make. And I was never happy making it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it was, um, it was something that was, yeah, really devastating to me. So I also had to grieve. I really had to, I wrote a lot about how much I loved my breasts. Mm-hmm. I really did. And having to say goodbye to them was hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spoken to many other women who said, oh, I'd be rid of mine in a heartbeat. They're big and cumbersome and I don't enjoy them. Or people who want to be gender neutral or, you know, there are many reasons why people would actually like to be without their breasts. Now they've done their, served their purpose or all, all kinds of reasons. But for me, it was really hard and I had to grieve. I wrote a lot and spoke a lot about the whole process. And I needed to hear myself and I think I really needed to be heard by others to be able to, yeah, become more, um, make peace with it, I suppose, is the phrase. Yes. I think that there's a disconnect between what the public perceives as breast cancer and what those of us living through it know. And I think that's one aspect is that it is an actual loss when you have a mastectomy and the change, you know, someone else going through a different type of, you know, breast reconstruction experiences a change too. And I think people don't realize how much it affects us And I think it boils down to what you said about it not being a choice. You know, those people who done with them in a heartbeat, that that almost implies a choice, right? Like that's that maybe would be something that you would choose, but to have a diagnosis out of left field and then be told as part of this, you are now going to have this part of your body removed that, you know, a lot of us have identity stuff wrapped up Mm. in. It is a big deal. And I, I really commend you for giving it that space to grieve and the, and the writing about it. Yeah, thank you. That, that idea about it not being a choice has really hit home. It's, um, yeah, it's still hard, to be honest, that I had to make that choice. It was my choice, ultimately. But it seemed like choosing between keeping my breasts or dying, frankly. And that's pretty much what I was mm-hmm. being told. And yeah, whew, that's, um, you could say it's a no-brainer. It actually wasn't for me at the time. There was a lot of um, depression, anxiety, um, a lot of, lot of emotions going on, a lot of sense of, you know, is this going to be worth it? Am I going to be able to live without my breast? Am I seriously going to look in the mirror every day and see that they're gone? I have scars mm-hmm. instead. And I had to take a long time. I did um, four months, I think it was, of chemotherapy before I had the surgery. So I had a long time to think about it. And I honestly believed during that time, 
through doing chemotherapy, um, Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, uh, all manner of meditation, all manner of things I was throwing at it. It was like, I'm going to reduce those lumps and I'm just going to have a lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. And that was my absolute conviction for those four months. So then when I finally requested a scan to see how well we succeeded in reducing them, and the medical oncologist had given me that impression also, mm. um, they kind of poo-pooed the idea of me having a scan to find out. Mm. And it was like, oh, you know, don't be ridiculous. This is your protocol. This is the plan. You're having surgery. It's like, well, you're not listening to me, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so then when it appeared that no, nothing had shrunk those lumps and in fact they'd grown, mm. then that's really where the rubber hit the road, you know, it had to be decided upon and I, yeah, chose to have it done. But like you say, was it really a choice? Right. Um, no, it's the lesser of two evils, I guess. Yeah. That's really interesting, um, listening to you because you've transported me, to those days when I was in the same situation, I also had my chemo first and so also had some time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with surgery. And um, I actually did have a complete pathological response to, to chemo. And so I guess if you look at it in that way, I, I did choose to lose my breast even though the tumor wasn't evident there. But it's still, I have to tell you, still doesn't feel like a choice, right? It's like being between a rock and a hard place. And, and, and we don't get any guarantees. We're only able to make decisions with what information we have. But one of the things that I've been continuously struck by is how we have to make certain decisions going through cancer that feel very immediate. And, you know, it's, there's, a, an invader in your body, there's a fire in your body, we need to like get this under control. And then if you're lucky, you then have to live with the aftermath of those decisions for a really long time. But our medical oncology teams aren't really talking to us about that hopeful eventuality of living for a really long time with or without breasts, with or without, you know, any of the other side effects. And it's such an interesting thing to me and learning, like you said, how do you travel for the first time without your breasts? How do you deal with prosthesis going through the scanner and stuff? But the other side effects, right? Like, you know, lymphedema <laughs> that comes up with travel and flying, et cetera. And um, for me, infertility, like there's so many other side effects that last a really long time past the emergency of we need to get this tumor under control or whatever it is. Um. I guess I don't know what my story is in there or my question rather, but have you also kind of noticed that how strange that is, that there's this, I guess, duality between right now and also hopefully forever? Yeah. Um, you were just reminding me as you were talking about that, how at the time of choice, I felt a lot of shame that I wasn't just saying, yeah, take them off, get them gone. I mm. I need to get on with life. My children need their mother. Um, it seemed like I was the only voice in the world saying, I love my breasts. They're an important part of me. And this is a huge choice. This is a, I'm being met with all these people saying, no, you'll have a double mastectomy. And I'm like, you're telling me you're going to take my breasts off my body. Mm -hmm. That is very different to having a double mastectomy. <laughs> right. You know, it's, um, it was all so medicalized and so 
to them just a complete no-brainer and to many people, not just medics. Um, you don't need them anymore. They've done their job. Mm -hmm. You know, you've breastfed. Um, you're in a relationship. I don't know all the reasons why you shouldn't need them anymore. But, oh my gosh, I was just faced with all of these thoughts around, well, what are breasts? People seem to think they're the most important aspect of a woman and you got to show them and show a bit of cleavage and that's mm -hmm. you know how you look feminine. But you're also telling me I don't need them and they're not. You know, it's, it's silly of me to be so vain that I might need them. And it's like, it's not visual, it's tactile. I truly felt mm. intuition in my breast. I truly felt certain things through that tissue, through the sensitivity of my nipples, through, mm -hmm. um, especially as a mother, I mean, remembering milk letting down and being woken, what? thinking, whoa, why am I awake? Oh, my baby's crying. Oh, my breast has right. started <laughs> expressing milk. Wow, who knew? I, when I hadn't consciously heard, my body was responding to my child's needs. That's huge. That's a huge part of being a woman, I believe. And I don't have that anymore. I don't have babies who need breastfeeding, it has to be said. But there's something about uh, that sensitive tissue, which is part of body and soul and heart and mind. And I would really love to be able to speak about this more and explain how to medics, mm -hmm. what a huge dis discussion this is and how just because it's easy surgery. I was told it's very um, simple. Uh, there was another word that they use, but straightforward surgery. Um, because it's a gland um, just under the oh skin, it's similar to just removing two fried eggs off a pan. And I was like, wow, for you as a surgeon, yes, fair, fair enough. And I thank you for saying it's not hugely invasive. It's not stomach. It's not involving muscles unless they get some of your pectoralis, of course. But I just, I just feel that yeah. there's, because it's an easy surgery, somehow that's a bit of a quick go-to. And surely by now there must be another way of treating breast mm -hmm. cancer successfully with radiation pellets like prostate cancer, or surely there must be another way. Just because this is easy as a medical procedure, um, I think we might have moved on from the rather medieval process of amputation, which is really what it is. Yes. So not sure if that answered your question, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, wanted to speak to that, I guess. Yes. Well, and I'm glad you did because it is interesting how, you know, I've been in uh, it's been 11 years since my diagnosis and, you know, some things have changed mm -hmm. and an awful lot hasn't changed in that time. And a lot, awful lot hasn't changed for many decades. And you're right that this particular piece as just being like part and parcel to having a diagnosis is, yeah, it needs scrutiny. It needs more. Um, yeah, so I appreciate you bringing that up. And I'm having these visions of a painting I saw, a medieval painting I saw of a mastectomy. So it's been with us for a very, very long time. It has indeed. Um, in the time we have remaining, I want to, and maybe we've touched upon it a lot, but I want you to tell me about this process of writing a one-woman play. Oh, yes, I'd love to. So I uh, got the opportunity of 
writer-in-residence at a local theater with a dramaturge, a female dramaturge, which was an amazing collaboration, where Danette asked me all the questions that she said. So many of us want to know what's, what is it like to get that diagnosis? What is the treatment like? But none of us want to be kind of brash enough to, to go and ask. You know, it's hard to know how to ask and raise the subject, raise the question. So she took me through just asking me these questions and I would write to them, similar to your fabulous writing prompts. And I said to her at the beginning, well, I had written some poems. That was the only way for me to really start to get into it was poetry, which was slightly distanced from the harsh reality, I think. And I said to her, Danette, when I look back, it's, there's just this black hole. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what just happened. Mm -hmm. It was very soon after um, treatment. And she said, well, just, you know, what was it like to, uh, to still be a parent as you're going through this? She said, just go and write mm -hmm. that. And it just poured out of me. Because I was away from home, I had this little cold little garret in a wintry scene. I was, I was stuck away um, in front of the fire, just writing my heart out. And it was incredible to me what I remembered, all these kind of slap to the forehead. Oh my gosh, I'd forgotten that mm. piece, wrote it all down. And it was so cathartic. I swear it helps the, the cancer mm. remove itself from my body absolutely convinced it was part of the healing. And then she helped me to fashion this beautiful arc of story of all these different snippets and different vignettes. And I got to read that at the end of the week in my own voice on stage to an invited audience of um, professional actors and friends. And it was the most empowering feeling to be up there saying all of this. There, was, there were ways in which I felt really wronged by the medical system. Um, it was, the piece was going to be called Cancer Bitch, but I decided <laughs> um, I decided that probably wasn't good. I didn't want to be referred to as the Cancer Bitch for the rest of my life. Uh, but I was referring to a doctor who I now call Dr. Bitch in the piece because she was really, really wrong in what she, how she... Um, treated me and I've had other people um, say to me, I know exactly the doctor that you had and mm. I had her myself. And I even called her a bitch to her face. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, anyway, being able to say all that out loud and feel heard was, was huge mm -hmm. for me, really was. Oh. So it was a part of, um, yeah, getting that recognition, I think. And now when I share it, I really hope that it gives other people permission to write it down, speak it out, say what it was like for them, whatever that may be, whatever the story. Because, yeah, for me certainly it was hugely healing and a huge part of bridging who I was and who I am now mm -hmm. was very, very important for me. Yeah, that is really important. And it's also really important to be able to say was wrong or you didn't feel like you were treated right or it wasn't right in some way. Like I think that we um, kind of wrapped up in this idea that we can be nothing but grateful or something like that. Like there's this oh. gratitude <laughs> bow that gets put on on the cancer experience. But in order to have true healing, you have to be able to express what you actually feel about it. And I love that in this format, you got to have witness to that as Absolutely. well. So just 
That's an awesome opportunity. I love what you say about the gratitude because the first piece that you published for me in um, Wildfire Magazine a couple of years ago was the poem Gratitude and Grief, a battle of mm -hmm. bedfellows because, right. oh my gosh, I was so conflicted with those two things. But I also know for myself, and this isn't necessarily the case for others, but for myself, I know that keeping quiet, stifling my voice, keeping my anger completely tucked away somewhere was a big part of why I ended up with breast cancer. I'm mm -hmm. absolutely convinced of it. So yeah, there, there were other reasons, there were other elements, including um, a genetic line, but I had to get that anger out in some way. And so I got help in um, artistically and creatively doing that, which is, yeah, a huge joy now. That's so great. Yeah, I really, I resonate so much with everything you're saying. Um, so Emma, where our time is drawing to a close and I want people to be able to experience more of your writing, where can they find you and your writing online? Oh, thank you. I have a Substack, which I really want Wildfire to join. <laughs> um, com, where I share a piece of the play, Breastless, every month, and then commentary about what I now see was going on behind all of that. And I encourage people to write and I, yeah, there are all kinds of things on there. Every week I share something. And Instagram, I have two because I had to create a container so that breast cancer didn't continue to be front and center mm -hmm. in my life. Um, so I created an, a second um, Instagram profile, a second Instagram profile, which is Emma J Breastless. And that is very much where I share about breastless and where I connect with other women um, who have gone through or are going through breast cancer. But my general writing and poetry one is Emma Jarrett writes on Instagram. So that's where people can find me online. And I love to connect with others, really do. I love to encourage others to use their story, to tell their story, to yeah, to tap into that creative spirit that we all have in some way or other. That's true. We do. Well, we will definitely link to to all the places where people can find you and read more and learn from your experience. So thank you so much for that, Emma. And thank you so much for reading Traveling with Pets. I just adore that story. Um, it just really resonates so much with me so much. So thank you. You got to have humor. You gotta have humor. You do. You do. You know, there is this man out there who had that experience with you. And, you know, I, and I didn't get a chance to say this earlier. I, I love how I see it so much in travel stories, especially, but the kindness of strangers and the grace that he offered you. What a gift in that moment, too. And, you know, it probably changed his life, too. Now he's aware, you know, of all the differences that, that people are dealing with, even on that conveyor belt. So yeah, I love that. Oh, that is so true. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That yes, those vulnerable moments do teach others. <laughs> for real. Or enable others to connect, to connect. In to have way. real human connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Emma, thanks again. Really appreciate you. Thank you, April. Oh, you too. You're doing beautiful, beautiful work out here. Thanks for letting me be part of it. Of course. And thank you for that. Well, thank you so much to Emma and to everyone listening. 
I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young people like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. If you want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories, visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our rich 40-plus issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. If you got value out of today's conversation, please share this out with your friends and family. Take a screenshot of the episode in your pod player or use the share button there. Of course, if you share it to your social media, please tag me. I'm at wildfire underscore BC underscore community. You can tag Emma as well. She's at Emma Jarrett Writes and Emma J. Breastless. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, please take a moment and leave us a five-star review. I would be forever grateful. All right, the prompt I have for you today is in two parts, and it's two parts on cancer baggage, both the literal and the metaphorical. So part one is what I have learned to carry. What I have learned to carry. And part two is what I have learned to leave behind. So what I have learned to carry and what I have learned to leave up behind, set your timer for eight minutes on each of those. Keep your hand moving the whole time. See what needs to come out and where it will take you. I hope that you enjoy that prompt, but if you find that you want more prompts, please head to wildfirecommunity.org free. I've got oodles of prompts for you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.